Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, author and social critic Walter Kern. Here's the thing. Intrinsically, once the machine consciousness has stepped in and, and once we're serving it, I don't want to be here anymore. How do they convince us to still be invested in that future? How do they convince us to still be at all interested in that existence? Walter and I will be continuing the conversation we've been engaged in, not just for the past week, but for the past 20 years, and hopefully bring back something useful for the team. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Team Human is a team effort, and now there are more ways than ever to get involved. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash teamhuman to join the team, or go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. We're entirely supported by our listeners, and if you do subscribe to the show, you get all sorts of exclusives and rewards. You not only sustain the work and many, many hours that go into producing this weekly show and keep us advertisement free, but you also gain access to our new Slack channel where we discuss our shows, we pitch potential guests and segments to each other, and we let ideas percolate uh, through the community. You can also get signed copies of the new paperback edition of Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus with, with a new preface and a reader's guide. You can download the complete omnibus version of Testament, my 24-issue uh, comic series. And you get a Team Human membership card, and you get that joy of being 
a participating member of Team Human. If you're not in a position to support the show financially, you can still help a whole lot by sharing episodes, rating us on iTunes or your favorite platform, or really just listening and trying to enact some of what it is that we're talking about by speaking with your friends, with your parents, with your classmates, with your colleagues, and trying to help uh, design this world toward more human ends rather than the end of humans. I'm Ramesh Srinivasan, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard D. Bartlett, and I'm on Team Human. I am Tessa Lena, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Adam Brock, and I'm on Team Human. I'm William Hoagland, and I'm on Team Human. So as promised, uh, this week we're doing the second part of my rather marathon conversation with Walter Kern. Uh, this week's the conclusion of our journey together into the heart of darkness, and we explore really how disingenuously promoted concepts such as creative destruction are being used to replace human civilization with a business plan. And we really ask, what would it mean to maximize the human virtues of compassion or intelligence instead of machine virtues like speed and extraction? You know, which eventually gets us to the question of whether is there a higher power and do we need one in order to value one another? You know, Walter has been a profound influence on the conception of Team Human from the beginning, and I invite you to enjoy this dangerous path he takes uh, through the material that we're all becoming more familiar with. Even before the computers were there, how did they convince us to be uh, committed to the to the Walmart uh, suburban existence? How did they convince us to stop riding the streetcar, reading a newspaper, drinking a beer, and instead buy an automobile and have to operate another piece of heavy machinery at our own expense and our own insurance to the point where we work one day a week just to support an automobile, which we didn't even need 100 years ago? Well, you know how they've done it? You know how they did it? Because they keep switching utopias on us, Doug. They keep, sw- <laughs> they, they keep switching, you know, pie in the sky. They, first it's apple, then it's peach, then it's cherry. And the old pie in the sky was that we were moving toward a state in which we would all be leisured and creative, in which material needs would be taken care of, and, and the natural creative instinct and, and the sort of brotherhood of man that you know, is is always waiting to emerge if only scarcity could be defeated. That Edenic future was was the reason we were all working so hard. But now they're pulling that away too because from what I can tell, we're going to be a big drag as a species on the earth once this machine utopia gets going. There's going to be way too many of us. And, you know, we're, 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 a lot of us are going to be restless and understimulated. I sometimes wonder if, they're, if the big engineers and plotters and planners of our social future are, are considering that there will be a war or some great die-off or extinction or plague See, or something. I don't, I don't think there are any social planners of our future. I don't think anybody's really 
thinking about it long term. You know, if they thought about it long term, then it would be like almost like the family businesses or or farmers you were talking about. You live in the town where your business is operating, so you experience the externality. Nobody's thinking that way. There's no FDR. I mean, for however pernicious it was, you know, Margaret Mead goes to FDR and works with him and psychologists to say, let's build Levittown. It's going to help control all the soldiers coming back from World War II so they won't kill each other and won't for labor unions. It was social control, but it was at least human intervention in human affairs. Now, I don't feel like there is human intervention in this. I feel like there's a few billionaires who are trying to create escape hatches for themselves, but nobody cares. It's just, get me to IPO. It's just, how do I sell this friggin' bunch of stock to the next round of suckers and move on? Well, you know, and, and that may be the most important technology of all, of course, the financial technology, because all these other little games and, 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 and apps and, and devices that are being created are really there for one reason, to make people rich. And, and so we've created a, a set of rich. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a, few, a very few people rich who then are going to somehow have to like find each other across the vast wasteland of civil war and, you know, global warming that they that they've, you know, created. But in any case, there are social planners, Doug, who are talking about things like, you know, guaranteed incomes and what are we going to do in a post-employment uh, right. age? You know, what is our politics going to be like? And, and so on. And, you know, they may be vainly thinking that they can control what's going to happen, but they do think of themselves as futurists and they have these, that's why we have these Aspen institutes and Davos gatherings and so on. And Those some all- of them are well-meaning. Right. Some of them are billionaires or, or, you know, I went to a meeting at, at Unilever in Europe, the like soap and cosmetics company and stuff. And they really do. The people in the room care that the planet survives, that people are happy, that <laughs> they're they're not evil. I mean, some. No, they're not, not. They're not. They're, they're not evil, but they are. There's something worse. I mean, in the Bible, it's like, you know, you're neither hot nor cold and I spit you out of my mouth. They're neither hot nor cold. They're, they're, they're kind of, what they are is sort of impotent, insipid, and irrelevant. Because though they talk about Facebook leading to, you know, everybody, you know, some kind of a social renaissance and everybody being together, and though they talk about Twitter creating a world conversation and, you know, uh, helping oppressed peoples rise up and so on. Well, that was a few years ago. Now, now they're not so sure that it's good for that. But though they have all these wonderful and somewhat anodyne portraits of, of, of the good, it's really unclear in a world where, you know, you have, you know, huge groups of medieval religionists who just as soon destroy the whole place. But, you know, but you and I, uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago, I mean, and and sometimes I'm in our society embarrassed to sort of almost admit that we're over 50 now. But, but you know, back in our teens and early 20s, and as this stuff was emerging, you know, whether it was electronic music and Brian Eno and the talking heads or the first computers and people hooking Mm -hmm. up to the internet through their modems. We had hope. 
at least I did, and I believe you did too, that something is coming, a new way for human beings to interact, a new collective consciousness could be kind of hardwired first and then maybe experienced, that these would be interesting training wheels, that new forms of communication, that we were moving from a read-only uh, you know, television reality into a read-write participatory internet reality. And my first books were sort of so... Um, not optimistic, but hopeful. And, uh, you know, as I propagandized for the augmentation of what it meant to be human. And of course, yes. then the, the market came in and turned this thing. But there are kids like we were then listening to this now, you know, of the 10 or 15,000 people listening to this, five or 6,000 are those smart, young, college, hopeful kids wanting to know, well, what do we do? We have the hope. How do we prevent what we're doing from becoming what happened to you guys? <laughs> well, 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 first of all, I would say withdraw your support as quickly and as totally as you can from the mediating corporate behemoths that have taken over this uh these instruments i mean withdraw your support I, it's better that you talk to three people in a real way than a thousand people in a facebook way and secondly how can i put it stop stop having faith that because it can be engineered it's good and start thinking about what you really want you know how can i put it we used to think about, we really want to fly. You know what we really want? We wanted the ability to, to fly, to go up into the air and leave this town and get to this other town like a bird does. And we created technologies that did that for us. Planes are for us to get human beings from one place to another in a way that we always dreamed. But these technologies are not for us anymore. They're just things that are possible that we're being trained to want. In mm. some cases, it's not working, like virtual reality. I'm, I'm really interested in how poorly Oculus Rift and these, these virtual reality goggles are doing as consumer products, except for hard, really hardcore gamers are not doing very well. They're really disappointed, and the people behind them are, are, are curious as to why that is. And I think it's because they're an evolutionary insult, because... In, in some way, we read a goggle, a virtual reality goggle, as a blindfold. It may be a very pretty blindfold, but it scares us to have our actual vision covered up by something else. It makes mm. us vulnerable, and it's not a good feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, and you see the pictures. They just sent me a, a Fios brochure, and the first page is these two kids, and it looks like they're wearing, you know, nighttime uh, uh, sleep... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sleep shades. It's like, right, I don't right. want to see my kids on a couch with those things on their faces. And in a way, we don't want to have those things on our faces. Right. Because, because though they may be, you know, wonderfully uh, digitized and in full color and panoramic, we don't like having the real world from which threats can come and saber-toothed tigers, if they still existed, can jump out, obscured by a freaking cartoon. Right. And the longer we wear we know that the longer we wear those goggles, the less and less safe it's going to be by the time we take them off. <laughs> exactly. So there is a case in which a technology is running up against a human limit. In other words, you know, 
they created virtual reality. It was possible. They made all these advances in terms of, you know, the motion of the images and the depth and field and so on. But ultimately, the organism doesn't want it. Well, I think we need to start responding from the gut in the same way we sort of have a suspicion of virtual reality and go, you know what? What about this stuff do we really want? And what what don't we feel comfortable with? Because our job is not to accommodate the machines. It is their job to accommodate us. We need to put ourselves in the center of the universe again. You know, it's time to, it's time to overturn the Copernican, uh, uh, decentralization of man and put ourselves back at the center. So and, you don't and, like the whole get with the program, uh, motto. <laughs> no, they, that, that, they need to get with us. We need to figure out what we want and how they can get it for us. Let's get back to the good old master servant relationship with technology. Because the only alternative to it is us being the servant. Yeah, well, I feel like we're in the moment where that with that flip, you know, that's this this sense of the reversal between the figure and the ground that McLuhan was talking about with his medium and the message that the humans are the figure, not the ground. But these days, our smartphones play us rather than us playing them. You know, they get smarter about us with every swipe and we get dumber about them. Yes. We get, yeah, they are opaque to us and we are transparent to them. And that gives, and that is like a card game against a, somebody who can see through your cards. You really want to play poker with a, you know, 12 eyed, you know, x-ray spec creature with artificial intelligence? I would if it wasn't being controlled by a bunch of shareholders who want to extract every piece of value I have and leave me as a dead shell on the side of the road. But Doug, the only impulse to develop that creature is the profit-driven impulse. Right. In, in other words, we don't live in a system of, you know, in which we identify as social good and then we all invest in it in some way, uh, you know, by virtue of our common citizenship uh, in order to get it. The only um, incentive to build these things is basically so that people can then use them to prey on us. Right. But it never was. I mean, back in the day when you and I hung out in the Mondo 2000 house in Berkeley, it was yeah. cyberpunks. It was cyberpunk psychedelic grateful deadheads who wanted to increase the power of the weird fringes and human autonomy and human evolution. I mean, the crazy people we met, you know, were taking DMT trips and trying to become aliens no that was a <laughs> well you know why that was doug because we as young people we fell for the oldest trick in the historical book we served as the research and development arm unpaid for the big system for the big institutions you know while we were running we were the just like buddy holly driving his truck around texas and then getting killed in a plane crash made, you know, made it possible for Apple, you know, iTunes to come along somewhere down the line. We were out there at the fringes of consciousness and experience and doing it for the hell of it and the love of it. 
we were coming up with, with models and ideas and aesthetics, which would then be adapted, um, mass produced and financialized and corporatized. And we didn't know we were doing that because no generation ever does. Right. And there's a moment, you know, when your parents and every adult in the world thinks that because you're playing with computers, you're a failure, you know, that you've like dedicated your life to Dungeons and Dragons or something, right, that right, those right. first corporations that came around to people like, uh, 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 what was it, the, the kids who did uh, Organic Online, you know, Matthew Nelson and Jonathan and, and John Stoyer, these original first internet people, the fact that AT&T or Intel or Goldman Sachs came up and said, oh, we want to put $100,000 into what you're doing. It felt like your parents finally saying, we get it. You're doing something of value. You know, <laughs> so we shook their hand and took them in. You know, if you, if you think about, if you think about the um, uh, sort of chapter progress of a lot of popular culture in the mid 20th century, it starts with the defense establishment. You know, they, they come up with, they start testing LSD on people out, you know, in Menlo Park uh -huh. or, or, you know, they invent the Internet or whatever it might be. And then it gets in the hands of kind of, you know, at that point, it's pure research on the part of, you know, the scientific arm of the government. Then it falls into the hands of kind of kooky, overeducated unorthodox people who who experiment with it and find possibilities in it and, and and develop a culture with it and then it matures to a point at which it can be captured and financialized and monetized and, and, and that's what happened you know it happened with rock and roll it happened with the drug culture and it happened with computers right and you um, could look at you know and interestingly enough you could look at Stuart brand as the guy who was at the center of all three of those transformations, you know, <laughs> he was with the Merry Pranksters doing the, the government CIA sponsored LSD. He was with the Grateful Dead doing the acid tests. And then he was there with the, with the, uh, the homebrew computer club, which eventually becomes global business network and wired magazine. Right. And the reason, and the reason we were enthusiastic about it in the late eighties and early nineties is we thought that this was a technology for the expansion of consciousness, right. not, not the disciplining of consciousness and certainly not the vanquishing of consciousness, <laughs> which right. is, that, which, I mean, which seems to be what Kurzweil's looking for. I mean, think about the day when you and I get, and, and the world gets a consumer ready, or let's say beta ready, testing ready, mm, augmented plug-in for our head, okay? You've got a choice, Doug. You can plug this module in, and you will now have access to the entire Encyclopedia Britannica as though were your own mind, and you can ask certain questions and make certain queries, you know, what's 1,017 divided by the square root of X, Y, Z, Okay, so you've got the choice. You've got to, you're about to plug it in. What anxieties do you have right before you do that? Oh. Is it just like, this is going to be cool? Or, you know, before the singularity, in other words, yeah. at the, when the Kurtzweil and singularity is, 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 is just right there to be had, to be grabbed, just a switch to be pulled, what do you worry about? I, I mean, what... What are the losses and the gains that run through your head? Well, for me, it's the it's 
a fear similar to uh, Dr. McCoy's fear of using the transporter, that the me on the other side of that transformation will have a discontinuous consciousness from the me on this side. Mm-hmm. That I'm annihilated. Yes. That in turning it on, you're turning yourself off. Right. Now, do you think that that is an atavistic, sort of silly, um, and someday to be completely forgotten anxiety? Or do you think it's of import and significance? I think it's of import and significance, but I think that the way they or it will get us to cast that reservation aside is by making uh, the the adoption of this technology uh, a requirement for participation in the economy. Yes, and that's what it's been so far. I mean, right, and that's what they turned the university, the university where I teach, which used to be really about resistance. The university education was about how to think so you don't have to fall into the cookie-cutter reality of, of the working stiff is now preparation for job readiness. You know, the university is going to be where they plug you into that thing as opposed to what, where they train you not to. Right, right. Well, skepticism isn't, you know, there isn't a big premium on skepticism anywhere in society anymore. We're all being taught to be cheerleaders, believers, hopers, and, you know, get-alongers. So in my thought experiment, the, the Kurzweilian module that I'm about to plug in that's going to mm-hmm. multiply my processing speed and uh, vastly enhance my memory and so on, that all sounds great. And you know what? I might do it if they kept that deal. In other words, if that was truly the bargain and I got to just augment myself, I might go for it. But what experience teaches me is that that won't be the deal once I've plugged it in. Right. Once I've plugged it in, what I've done is I've created a, first of all, complete surveillance of all possible mental <laughs> events. You know? Yeah. It's, it's all going to be recorded and fed back. Two, I've created a possibility for controlling me without me even knowing it that is probably infinite. So in other words, any illusion I might have had of free will up until the point I put that in, I better be willing to get rid of because experience teaches me that I've just put a control unit in, a surveillance unit in, Mm -hmm. and I've also probably put a marketing unit in. It's probably going to make me want to do things that make money for people. It's not, it's not going to ultimately make me do things that I wanted to do before, like add numbers faster, which I didn't really want to do, or, you know, write novels, which were only interesting because they were hard. Who wants to write a novel when it's just being like streamed from some module in your head? Um, But in any case, if the deal was honest, I might take it. But the deal's not honest, and it's never been honest. Right, because they can change the user agreement anytime they want. <laughs> and exa- not only can they, that's what they're. That's what they're for. I mean, it's like, how can I put it? When I when I I remember when I figured out that they don't care. I know why the printer is so cheap because they're selling me the cartridges. Right. You know. Oh, I know why the app is so handy and free because they're trying to get the permissions to, to suck out my data and sell it, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. But the, the beauty of this, though, is that if we still are in a market system, there is a glut of data. 
Every single company out there, these multi-billion dollar companies are all betting on this data play at the end. And there's not enough there are not enough companies that need that data. There's not enough juice in the human beings to squeeze that much more out of it. Right. I mean, in, in <laughs> other words, in other words, get you, they can give us infinite data about everyone to the point where they can manipulate perfectly and get us to buy, you know, by snap of fingers. But at that point, first of all, it will be useless because it's like. It, that's sort of the situation where, we're, you know, farmers all plant soybeans because they hear soybeans are selling for a lot, but then there's a glut of soybeans. Well, at the point where people are just completely plastic and manipulable and there's, you know, whatever, the data is going to be useless because getting people to do stuff will be commodified. And it won't be hard anymore. It won't be rare. It won't be valuable, you know. Um, we'll once again be faced with the fact of what should we do? What, what is life for? They're going to get to the point where they can sell anybody anything at any time. And the only limitation is how much money you have to buy it. But, you know, how are we going to earn our money in that situation too? Because, um, you know, can I just be pure consumer? I mean, I, I guess, can the government just give me money and then uh, industry can just extract it from me? Is In that theory, the well, that's the that's the uh, the that's the universal basic income model. I mean, basically, yeah. oh, they don't have any jobs to consume with, so here, give them some money to consume with. I mean, but I I do buy the idea that every human being is entitled to basic services. We're all entitled to a place to live and food to eat and medical services. And we have a bounty, an abundance of that stuff. You know, so we are using lack of employment, well, okay. you know, as justification for not letting people eat. Well, that's true. But, you know, I just did a, I just wrote a column for Harper's Magazine on dystopian fiction. And I read, I read about 50 dystopian novels, you know, <laughs> probably skimmed some of them, but, and they're all pretty much about the same thing. The, the universal fear of, of the sort of humanist over the last century or so has been that we're all going to end up slaves. We're right. going to end up slaves of Big Brother. We're going to end up slaves of some kind of like system of pleasure response manipulation, like in Brave New World, you know, where they use drugs and sort of sexual titillation to control people. But we're going to end up slaves one way or another. And so so that's the big anxiety. And, and, and the other big anxiety is that life will be meaningless, you know, in, in the sense that mm, everything will be easy and taken care of and stable, but there will be absolutely no reason to want to go on. Right. You, you've reached a kind of plasma state of, you know, it's like humans are algae. Everything's taken care of and we're blooming and everything's green and we've all got the proper nourishment individually, but why? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's, where, that's the one that's bothering me. <laughs> I think we're slaves already to some extent. We're not in control. I mean, but we're rapidly approaching a point at which it's going to be hard to desire anything. <laughs> right. You know. Or to care. I mean, the, the passion's taken away. I mean, and that's, again, back to the zombie movies. That's the way people are feeling. I'm eating. I'm killing. I'm, I'm, but what? You know, <laughs> what do I yeah. care about? Yeah. 
you said earlier, and I think it was kind of the best question that's been asked here is, how did they motivate people to buy into the sort of post-war American suburban, you know, industrial hmm. corporate model? They they did it by saying, you know, you're gonna you're gonna be realize only recently had penicillin been developed, you know. There yeah. was still polio there were still polio epidemics going on. You know, there was a lot of pain in the world that we were being promised we would be relieved. We were getting of. a new deal. Yeah. We weren't going to have polio anymore. We weren't going to have infections that cause you to have to get your leg cut off because you just cut your toe. Yeah. We weren't, you know, we weren't going to have to work in backbreaking toxic industrial situations that, you know, would leave you spent and used up at 40 years old. Right. But we also weren't going to have the kinds of labor exploitation that we had, you know, back in the early 1900s where union busting and bashing of heads. You know, these poor guys were coming back from World War II, having lived through Saving Private Ryan. And we're going to give you a wife and a house and public school and a job and a mortgage and free college if you need it. Just don't fucking freak out. Okay? <laughs> exactly. So, so basically, it was pretty easy to motivate people who had just gone through a depression, mm -hmm. who had experienced, you know, plagues and an influenza virus only 20 something years before yep. that had killed, uh, you know, hundreds or tens of millions of people. But, you know, it's getting a little harder now when all you're promising is more dessert. Even more dessert, more better, faster dessert, you know. Um, now, that's not to say there aren't people in terrible straits. And there are more of them than we realize, thus Trump. You know, we have a hollowed out middle of the country that we aren't paying attention to where all our victims go to be buried and they're screaming. Um, and, and, and so, you know, on the one hand, the advantages that are had for the plugged in class – often seem to come out of somebody else's hide somewhere else, you know. And we really have to deal with that before we go into utopia. I, I think that's that's number one, you know. But there's, um, there, there, so we've kind of talked about capitalism. We've talked about technology. But there seems to be the, the, the unspoken bankruptcy is spiritual. It's... Uh, 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 I don't mean to 12-step humanity, but I feel right. like we've got to recognize not necessarily God, but a higher power and order to the universe that 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 you do good things and it amplifies good, that that there is love and 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 a social reality. That's the point of team human was to argue that hum being human is a team can't really be fully human if you're not connected to these other beings. Well, that's right. And, and, and that comes under the heading of ethics, you know, and, and, and morality and spirituality. And, and the sources for those teachings, the traditional sources for those teachings, some of which we terribly distrust, organized religion and so on, don't, aren't, don't have a big role in the current society, uh, say. We're trying to derive an ethics from environmentalism and, and climate change. Right. Um, we're trying to we're trying to posit this sort of ultimate existential threat, and then derive from it a sort of set of behaviors and attitudes that 
you know, I, I don't know if that's going to work, frankly. I, 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 it's already not working. I know. It's uh, this sort of Jeremy Bentham-like kind of utilitarian understanding of ethics. And you can't retrofit ethics to the ego's need to survive. This is like all that denial of death stuff. You know, no, you're going to die. <laughs> you're going to die. That's not the point. The point is, is how are you living? I mean, it's really yes. strange. Well, you know, because because I so I look at my kids, my eighteen-year-old daughter, and what morality means to her is is sort of this reverse-engineered disaster thinking. Morality is everything which forestalls or prevents this terrible ecological catastrophe from happening. You know, so, so in other words, I have to be unselfish, have to be sustainable in my consuming habits, um, should eat organic and da, 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 da. So that, that's increasingly her generation's version of morality. And I see it in my students because I teach writing, Right. you know, when in old time stories, moral conflict meant, you know, um, does someone betray a friend or, you know, is somebody dishonest? And now conflict in short stories that I'm seeing students turn in has to do with whether one character can convince, convince another to recycle. Well, right. It's almost a systems morality. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it's kind of weird and it, and it depends. But it may be on- effective. Well, it's not. We just pulled out of a climate treaty uh, and right. we didn't do it surprisingly. The guy who pulled us out ran on the promise that he would. Well, because it Meaning, doesn't appeal to the reptilian sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. So we're starting to unplug. In other words, this vision of global uh, unity achieved around a, a consensus threat. Hmm. We'll see if that holds up or not. Well, it's because it was it was leveraged and exploited by neoliberals for their agenda. They 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 tainted environmentalism by combining it with sort of old Rockefeller style internationalism. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Sort of World Bank plus climate change. Right. Plus, you know. Like I say, working from the, the global threat down to mm-hmm. the in, how the individual should behave, that's sort of – that's a possible model for, for, for giving human beings meaning. But it seems, first of all, negative. Like you said, it, it's all about anti-death rather than anything else. You know, it's about not drowning. It's about not burning uh, oh. Right, and it's logical. I mean, it's what it's what Mr. Spock does in Star Trek. It's what Maimonides did with the Jews by saying Judaism is compatible with Greek logic, you know. And it leads to a kind of a a cold morality, but not a hot blooded mammalian passionate uh, uh, zest for life. Well, it, it, it yes, it doesn't have it doesn't. It doesn't show you what your pleasures should be. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't intensify your feelings of relationship with other people. You know, it doesn't um, uh, create heroic quests to go on. Quite, you know. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that I agree with you. Without without some kind of moral, spiritual, ethical. Mm, or intensely aesthetic um, <laughs> sense of, of the good, 
can go a thousand miles per hour, but you have no idea where, where to go with it. You know, I mean, I've been handed all these machines, but I don't know what to do with them except take my own picture over and over. Right. Or, you know, scratch my genitals over and over. Almost everything that these new machines are allowing the individual to do is just compulsively waste time until they disintegrate. Right. And those pleasures pale in comparison to the environmental damage uh, caused in the production of these of these devices and yeah. in the disposal of the devices later. Well, you know, one of the you know, this and this only I only became aware of this a few years ago. I generally thought of high technology as as clean technology, as you know, uh, as some somehow we're trading bytes for atoms. We're um, we're not doing as much damage and disfigurement to our world by moving into these new kind of goods. But that's just not true. We're 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 um, as I found, just the energy drain of devices is huge. I didn't realize that the sort of, you know, the data crunching and communication drain on our grid is upwards of like ten percent of the of the energy we use, um, and going higher. Mm. And the elements that we use to make them, the rare and strange, you know, chemicals that go into these devices are poison as hell. Yeah. Um, I mean, of all the things that technology is really great at externalizing, it's their own, <laughs> their own impact is number one. Yeah. If you had to show, if you had to, if you had to kind of like show in a movie, like a Bunuel movie, a, a movie that uses visual symbolism, my relationship to technology and some of my sort of uh, recent epiphanies, uh, it would involve a sequence uh, that shows what happened when my phone broke about two weeks ago. I had an iPhone, and it, it it had suffered every insult you can imagine. You know, the screen was cracked, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, I'm not even going to turn this in. I'm not even going to throw it away. I'm just going to take it apart to see how an iPhone works. I really – I just want to be like a kid with a radio. Uh -huh. and, and I pried off the screen and everything – and somehow in this, I happened to scratch, I think with like my little um, uh, Swiss Army knife uh, blade that I was using, the lithium battery. And the damn thing started to smoke and crackle. And I was like, what the hell? That's been in there that whole time? You know, suddenly the idea of Samsung phones exploding on planes was not, you know, a uh, uh, a joke anymore. I was like, at the heart of this thing, there was this fiery, smoky chemical bomb. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought it, I thought it was all just you know angels dancing on the head of a pin. No, it's like the blood in of the aliens in Alien, that acid stuff that could pour through all the decks of the ship. <laughs> you know, remember the movies that we used to see when we were in high school, or in college, like uh, the, what was the one that David Bowie, where he, the man who fell to earth, yeah. and he comes what he needs water for his civilization or something, you know, um, there were a lot of movies back then where you had the alien point of view on the society and he was kind of angelic. They they usually died in our crude atmosphere yeah. and you know and so on. We don't do that anymore. We never look at ourselves 
in an alienated, defamiliarized way. We're all on board, man. Everything's just get on the train, the super train for the future. But, you know, you and I grew up in a moment of intense skepticism about a lot of things. And we've watched all of those skeptical questions be sort of um, deemed irrelevant <laughs> or, neutra or neutralized or, you know, or just, you know, violently shut up. And, and, and just the room for, for humans to ask, what is this doing for us is disappearing. Right. I mean, and of course, the other side of skepticism is awe. And genuine awe is just as outlawed, you know, these days. Genuine, just, oh my God, as if it's uncool to be in true awe of, of nature or one another or something you've read. I've got a question for you. When was the last time in a computer technological fashion that you felt awe? When was the last demonstration of a machine or a program or whatever where you went, whoa? Oh, dude. It's really sad. Um, probably when um, I met this Jeff Hawkins, who invented something called the Palm Pilot. <laughs> and it was like this, it was the pre-smartphone. It was a smartphone without a phone in it. It had right. this little stylus and you would, and I was like, dang, that, it's like almost everything your computer does in this one little thing. I kind of thought of then, but yeah, that was a black and white, you know. Right. <laughs> nothing, no, nothing. Everything we're doing is just faster, louder, more colorful versions of the original internet that we had in the very early 90s. You know, Eudora as a mail application. Um, all the streaming media is just C-U-C-Me out of, out of Cornell. Uh, the gopher search and FTP searches are really, that's what the World Wide Web is. Everything else is, is just prettier versions of something that was so core that, that it's, it's, I feel like we were alive in the kind of the Greek tragedy period of these technologies where you could see the vector graphics of a game like Asteroids and mm -hmm. the human was in charge. And now it's as if these worlds are so opaque, they're so rendered that there's no more place for me in them. You know, there's no role for me in, in my computer. Yes, yes. And not only that, you are also... You know, I wrote another piece for Harper recently about how micro generations are developing now, how people three years apart, because they have adopted different technologies or were around for the, you know, ascendance of, of different, uh, you know, apps and so on, feel worlds apart in time. You know, uh, kids who grew up with different game console standards feel like they're from different generations, even though they're five years apart. Um, I'm finding that happening in an accelerated way. More and more, I'm seeing possible technological uh, plugins for my life that I'm just rejecting. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just going, you know what? I don't see enough of a gain from that to justify the learning curve or the complexity or the whatever. So, you know, there was a point at which everybody was pretty much adopting everything that came down. And now people are starting to individuate around what they 
are willing to put up with, what kind of intrusions, um, what, you know, how much time they want to spend with the stuff, whether their work requires it or not. And so the technology that was supposed to at least knit us all together is starting to drive us apart. I don't even understand half the stuff my daughter is doing on her phone. I don't even know what it is. And I wouldn't know how to check on it. You know? Uh, I know most of what it is and, and <laughs> how worthless how worthless and distracting and 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 extractive it is. Um so I mean we're we're I I guarantee you there's there's almost nothing going on there. At least compared to the bandwidth that she can have spending two minutes with another person face-to-face, looking at their eyes, letting those mirror neurons kick in, letting the oxytocin come out. You know, social media is so intentionally and intrinsically desocializing at this point that I, I believe social media is the greatest threat to the social, social human reality. Well, social human reality is literally a competitor in the sense that in the sense that two networks have a show on at Thursday at eight and one competes with the other. Mm-hmm. Well, real life has a show that's on at eight and social media has a show that's on at eight and you can't be in both watch both of them at the same time. So in other words, social media is in direct competition with quote real life, direct competition that you can't be using their products to the max if you are sitting there talking to somebody. Right. Every minute you spend talking to someone, having sex with someone, even playing cards with somebody is a minute that you have pulled yourself away from the attention economy. That's bad for the GDP. That's bad for the corporations. That's bad for every metric we have of social health right now. And, uh, and, yeah. and so if you're running those companies, here's what you think. How do I colonize that time that those people are sleeping, having sex, driving their cars themselves, um, having intense conversations, etc.? How do I get in there? How do I make them not like doing that anymore and like what I have as a substitute more? Right. How do I? I do, do that I by them? making people hate each other, fear each other, um, and want to be alone with my technology. I want to take them off Team Human. And get them to join Team Machine. And that's, right. uh, that's what we're here to fight. But the problem with Team Human, Doug, is yeah. now we've, we've named it. You've named Team Human. Because we didn't have a name for it before. Because we, we didn't have an opponent. We, there, was only one, there was only one team, so we didn't have to be a team. We didn't have an adversary, but we've got an adversary now, so we had better, well, you know, look around, uh, shape up, figure out what we have in common, what we want to preserve, what's important to us, and, 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 and get together to preserve it because we do have an adversary now. And it was supposed to be our friend. It was sold to us as our friend. It was sold to us as our pretty pet little dog that was going to keep us company or it was going to be the thing that helped us talk to each other, a better telephone. But it has grown into our full-blown adversary. adversary. And we need to treat it as such. And you can have, and you can have uh, interesting relationships with adversaries. You know what? You can keep each other honest. You can play games against each other and, you know, sort of pit your uh, you know, wits against them and have ritual battles. But if you forget they're your adversary, you're in trouble. Well, and if you forget 
<laughs> you have a team, and we have a team, man, and we just didn't know we were on it. Walter Kern, thank you for being <laughs> on Team Human. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need we need allies on this team, human. It can't just be you and me and seventeen other people. So no, we're getting them. We're getting them. I'm in the streets. I'm, I'm <laughs> handing out stickers. <laughs> Don't worry. I got it. I got it taken care of. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. This is Stephen here. I'd also like to thank all of our new patrons who found us over at Patreon. Again, we're at patreon.com slash teamhuman. Thanks for your support, and I'm looking forward to getting to know you on the Team Human Slack channel. Patrons can find the complete 90-minute uninterrupted interview with Walter Kern on our Patreon blog wall. And again, our music is thanks to the generosity of our friends Mike Watt at the intro, followed by Josh Citrin and the Team Human Band. You heard Team Human episode 31 guest Are You Serious just before the interview. And the music you hear right now is thanks to Discord Records and Fugazi. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff, Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.